Paul Ryan needs to step down as Speaker of the House. The reason? He failed to deliver the votes on his health care bill, the one trumpeted to repeal and replace Obamacare, the one that he had seven years to work on, the one he hid under lock and key in the basement of Congress, the one that had to be pulled to prevent the embarrassment of not having enough votes to pass. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host for this show and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. How are you doing, Luke? I'm doing good. How are you, Cal? Doing pretty good. Um, so this is the last week of the legislative session. Uh, we're recording on Monday night and the legislature is going to be in session for their final two days on Tuesday and Thursday of this week. So hopefully you're listening to us on Tuesday morning or sometime afterwards. Uh, but this is going to be the last week that, le- that the legislature is in session. And then we're going to have at least one more show on this session as our legislative recap coming up next week. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about the demise of the American Health Care Act. This is the Republican proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, we talked about the politics of this before, but the bill died on the House floor this week. Um, so we're going to talk about the implications of the death of this Republican promise to repeal Obamacare and how it impacts how Republicans in Washington are going to be able to govern going forward. Uh, For our second topic this week, we're going to take a look at three different bills that are kind of making their way through the last bits of the legislative process. Uh, One of these we've talked about pretty extensively. That's the campus sexual assault bill. Uh, But we're going to talk about two more that we haven't touched on. The second one is the 2017 edition of the Campus Carry Bill, which has been vetoed in the past by Governor Deal. And then we're going to talk about what was a a sudden change for an attempt to rewrite Georgia's adoption laws for the first time in over 25 years, uh, where a member of a Senate committee inserted some language um, that would basically allow adoption agencies to not uh, you know, give up children to same-sex couples. Um, so all three of these, to some extent, kind of are the culture war bills of this legislative session. Um, so we're going to talk about that kind of broadly um, and check in on those bills. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to take a look, uh, take a way too early look at the 2018 governor's race. It's never too how, early, Kyle. And uh, I, I think it's a little early, but We'll let the listeners decide, Uh, but we're going to take a look at how the dominoes are going to start falling shortly after the legislative session and into the off season. Um, But we're going to start the show, unfortunately, with some really sad news. Um, So John Richards, who was the editor in chief at Georgia Poll and, and somebody who was really well known in Georgia politics, he passed away on Sunday morning with his family. Um, we had talked a little bit about it here and, and it's been in the Georgia political community that John Richards was battling cancer. Um, and so you know, really sad news for people in the Georgia political community that, um, that he passed away this weekend. 
Yeah, this is pretty hard for me too, because um, John was someone I had just like started to interact with more as uh, the show going up, and that I had gotten more involved in state politics. Um, I always loved his writing and found he had a lot of the best insights out of anybody who was uh, out there writing about what was going on with Georgia politics. And a lot of my good friends on the uh, Republican side of the aisle have listed him as you know one of their greatest mentors and someone that they really looked up to and could seek out for advice. And so um, he was a real big advocate for getting young people involved in politics, even if it was on the other side. I mean, mostly like that's irrelevant to what a great of an impact he had and getting people to get involved in young uh, politics as young people. So uh, Georgia is suffering a pretty severe loss today, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely saw that too about John. He actually, the first time I ever um, interacted with John, he reached out to me after he had shared something on Georgia poll that I had written. Um, he kind of reached out to me out of the blue. I had, I had known who he was through following his reporting. Um, but he gave us a lot of encouragement early on with this show. Um, and, uh, there was a lot on Facebook and, and around that John had been really helpful to people coming up in Republican politics, but that advice and encouragement was definitely not something that was only reserved for Republicans, he helped us a couple of Democrats out. Yeah, also. because, I mean, honestly, like, and I'm not just saying this, I really do mean it, like, I kind of felt like, oh, we're actually doing something here when John was paying attention to us and retweeting us and having conversations with us. So uh, that that was a, a big blow to not just us, but to a lot of young people getting active in politics in Georgia. Yeah, he's, he's going to be missed. Um the one nice thing, he has quite the legacy that he's left on Georgia politics in terms of all of the young people that he has mentored and encouraged along the way. So his impact in our state politics is going to be felt for a really long time. So that will move on to our first topic this week, and it is the demise of the American Health Care Act. Um, so we talked about the politics of this bill previously. So just to kind of catch everybody up, um, after we had talked last the Republicans in Washington had moved the bill through the committee process in the House of Representatives, and the bill had, would, was moved to the House floor by Thursday for a vote that was scheduled last Thursday afternoon. Um, now, at the time, it didn't appear that the bill had the votes to pass the House, so the vote got delayed to Friday. And um, somewhere in that time, Donald Trump had basically said, I want a Friday vote. And if they're going to vote no, uh, you know, I want them to vote no for this to be a public rebellion by members of the Republican caucus against the wishes of President Trump and House Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, so Friday on midday, Paul Ryan went to the White House to tell Donald Trump that they didn't have the votes and to ask Trump what he wanted Ryan to do with the bill. And if you were following this along in real time, you would have seen reporting from White House officials saying that they wanted Republicans to take this vote. They wanted them to, if they were going to go against the president, to do it on live TV. And they, you know, it was thought of at the time, this was my impression, that they were trying to make Paul Ryan the fall man and make it very clear that this thing failed in the House. Um, but in about the hour and a half between when Paul Ryan left the White House and when people started looking for a vote, uh, Donald Trump actually called Robert Costa. He's a 
journalist well-sourced with Republican lawmakers in Washington. He reports for the Washington Post. And Trump said it was Trump's idea to pull the bill off the floor and not have the vote on Friday. Um, So that's kind of how the end went down for this. It was a really, you know, quick death for the American Health Care Act. It was something that they had only considered from introduction through its failure to receive a vote for a little under three weeks. Um, Luke, what do you think about the failure of the first big legislative initiative of the Trump administration and this failure on this promise that Republicans have made for, what, seven years now? Well, I think the main thing I'd say is is it's not surprising, and this doesn't actually have, this is one of the rare comments I'm going to have on this particular issue that doesn't really have anything to do with the fact that it was Republicans or Trump that was doing it. Like, just look at the history of healthcare debates in the United States. I mean, really, between FDR and where we are right now, there have only been two other times that healthcare has been significantly overhauled successfully. And that was with LBJ, with Medicare and Medicaid, and Barack Obama with the Affordable Care Act. And I, I, you know, I've said I made that point before, but I think it really like stands to be re-mentioned and mentioned again and again and again that the norm is that healthcare is really hard and people usually fail. Like Nixon tried it, so Truman tried it, just so many other people have tried it. You know, even even. Uh, George W. Bush tried to do some significant healthcare overhauls and did not get nearly as far as he wanted to with it. So, at the end of the day, I'm not surprised that it happened. Now, I'm surprised in how it happened, and we'll get into that in a minute. But, like, the fact that they were not able to successfully do this is really not that astonishing because that's what usually happens. And we're all very biased, and I think uh, a lot of the media has actually, in a rare sense of self-reflection has been good at pointing this out is that like we're all used to oh healthcare is really hard by the end of the day you you figure it out eventually um because that's what you know happened with the 14 month struggle that was obamacare um but with this bill you know they they basically just rolled it out there and tried to get it done as quickly as possible um as to the why they did that, I kind of think that this was never actually a serious policy goal. And the reason why that is, is pretty obvious, again, if you just look at the history, which is um, Democrats stole all of the best Republican ideas to make Obamacare. We took every good idea that Republicans had, threw some of our ideas in there, and made the Affordable Care Act. So that's why they couldn't come up with a policy alternative, because we literally stole all of their good ideas. So we floated that theory on the last show, Ezra Klein wrote about it, that this was never something that Paul Ryan really wanted to do. And so I had sort of like kind of forgotten about that as I was watching this whole process take place. And then I got to the end and I kind of realized that like, if you wanted your bill to fail and you wanted to do it in the sort of like quickest way possible, this was pretty much the way to do it. They wrote a bill that it didn't appear anybody took seriously. There was enough in it to anger both sides of the Republican caucus. Um, and then it seemed as though there, there was never the effort, um, at least from the, from the White House, in actually trying to get this thing done. Trump did sort of schmooze with some lawmakers. He added some Republicans over to go bowling and all that. But it, 
I don't. It just. I, never I have to disagree felt. with that a little bit. Now I agree with you on the first point that this is definitely a bill that was designed to fail, and from Congress, it was definitely a bill that they did not put a lot of effort into and i would say the only thing they could have put in there and make it more unpopular is literally put death panels in there um i think though trump pushed this really hard i mean he did it in a really haphazard trump way and was basically like you know screaming at people to you know publicly stake if they're going to go against him or not and that's why i pushed for the vote on friday so he could see where everyone's loyalties stand and so he seemed to like be on the outside the appearances in the public pushing it really hard now he doesn't seem to care that it failed either but i mean he did seem like that this is something that he wanted well but i i think the difference is that he I mean, we all know that Trump doesn't really care about policy. And so you never expect him to go in and sort of negotiate actual policy details. But throughout the entire process, nobody really took Trump's role in this seriously. I can remember when we were talking about the early stages of this, Trump was saying, oh, once we get Tom Price confirmed, uh, Tom Price is going to have the Trump administration's health care proposal. And then we're going to work through all these ideas. And there were... Republican aides on the Hill that thought Trump was making it up. They never thought he had his own proposal. And one of the issues that I saw was that both Republicans in the moderate flank and House Freedom Caucus Republicans had very specific policy complaints about this bill. And Trump would just walk in and try to twist their arms and say, you know, this is about winning. This is about getting a win for the administration and a win for the Republican Congress. But he couldn't, you know, square the circle for people on their policy complaints. Um, I mean, I mean, that's kind of my point, though. Like, that's why I'm that's why I feel like they were trying, because if if your theory is right, that they don't really care and that they didn't really care about getting this bill through, then why weren't all the leaks that Steve Bannon went to the House Freedom Caucus and say, look, guys, just stop making us look so bad and let's just get this thing over with. We'll vote on it. It'll fail. We'll move on. Instead, what you have is Steve Bannon, like, trying to be like an authoritarian father figure and telling people what to do. And there's a great quote. I, I can't... The, the rep was unfortunately unnamed, but uh, like a uh, House of Representatives member just said, you know, last time someone told me what to do, I was 18 and it was my daddy. I didn't listen to him either. You know, it's like, why, why, <laughs> it's like, why, why is that the quote coming out and not the, ooh, they don't even care about this bill. They're not really pushing it. So like for them not caring about it, they definitely like were A plus actors in you know, acting like they care about it because that's all that was coming out that they really wanted to make this happen and then it didn't. I mean, I think in a previous generation, if they had wanted to get this done, there might have been new tools for the Republican leadership to kind of strong arm their members into supporting this. Um, But there are a lot of things about Congress that have changed and a lot of things about politics that have changed in the last 10 or 15 years that I think played a role in this. For instance, new forms of media, things like Twitter, they've really made it possible for backbenchers to sort of develop their own image and use that for small dollar fundraising. I think the example of this 
actually came from the Senate side before the bill would have ever gotten there and probably died on that side if it had, was Rand Paul running around the Capitol with a copier um, trying to find the real bill and sort of how from the very beginning members who did not like how the process was going took to their town halls, took to their Twitter feeds and made it very clear that this was not an acceptable process. And I think that's something that would have been more difficult um, to do maybe 10 or 15 years ago. The other thing that I think is important is that you know, Obamacare was one of the last bills that was passed with really significant earmarks. There was the Cornhusker kickback that was, you know, was criticized pretty seriously back during that effort. Now, what what is that kickback very briefly? Because I know a lot of people don't know what that is. It was just a special deal on the Medicaid program that Nebraska got um, because the Obama administration and leaders, uh, legislative leaders were trying to sway uh, Bill Nelson. He's a former senator from Nebraska. But it was just one of the deals that was used to get members on board. For your House Freedom Caucus people, they're the ones who are the most aggressive budget hawks, and they're ones who probably could not be bought off with an infrastructure project or or something like that in their district. The moderate members probably could have, but Paul Ryan is not the type of speaker to offer these kinds of deals. Um, well, let, let, let's move on to another aspect of that. It's, it's along the same lines, but... Um, it's pretty clear to me that this sets us up for having a pretty scary and pretty significant fight when it comes to raising the debt ceiling and funding the government to avoid shutdowns, actually doing the budget. Um, to me, this kind of proves that the House Freedom Caucus is not going to play ball just because the president has an R by his name. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that this is just a sign of more dysfunction to come? Or was this sort of like a very specific issue and had a very specific reaction? I don't, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm concerned. I think that Obamacare is a bit of a special case and that they've been talking about it. And a lot of the new Republican members, one of their first big political positions was to oppose and advocate for the repeal of Obamacare. The other instance where the far right flank of the Republican Party has almost upended legislating in recent years is both funding the government and avoiding a government shutdown and increasing the debt ceiling. So I think there's a lot of other issues, maybe even like tax reform that might be achievable, if not very difficult. If Members of the House Freedom Caucus think that now that a Republican is in power in the White House, they can have maximum leverage to use something like the debt ceiling to negotiate spending cuts or spending decreases. Um, I think it's going to be it's going to be a tight rope to walk because there's a lot of moderate Republicans in the Senate that are not going to be wild about using you know, potentially bringing the American economy up to the cliff again to, um, you know, do spending cuts, especially if some of these, you know, it's easy to be for spending cuts that are never going to happen when you're an opposition party. I think part of what happened in this healthcare fight is that there were spending cuts in the Medicaid program and spending cuts through the 
health insurance subsidies that were going to be very unpopular and people in their districts or their states were going to feel it. Um, And I think that some of those same constraints are going to be there if the House Freedom Caucus wants to play hardball on the debt ceiling or keeping the government open. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think what we're going to see is that the House Freedom Caucus is going to continue to do what they do, and that's be a general pest to anybody who actually wants to have a functioning government. Um, And they will continue their goal of not having a functioning government. And with that in mind, I think what we're going to end up seeing is that uh, Paul Ryan's going to have to waltz his way over to Nancy Pelosi and ask uh, for enough votes to save the the government. Now, the thing is, I don't, This is the thing that I think we don't really know about Paul Ryan. I saw criticism of him in his role as speaker following this. I mean, Trump teed up his Twitter followers to watch the Judge Jeanine show on Fox News um, the night, I think it was the night after the bill went down or the night the bill went down. And then Judge Jeanine started her show with a monologue about how Paul Ryan needed to resign as speaker. Uh, But there's been other criticisms about, you know, Paul Ryan is someone who came to fame by making budgets, and then he was famous as a uh, vice presidential candidate. And um, some of the discussion, some of the argument for Paul Ryan when he sort of did this will I or won't I with the speaker's job was that he could be a good messenger and be on TV. Um, And he was good at that because he's good at packaging these budgets that are full of terrible spending cuts and trying to pretend that they're a good thing. Um, No one that I've seen has sort of advocated for Paul Ryan's skill as a person who can whip votes and navigate the Republican caucus through lawmaking. Um, Yeah, because I don't think he has any skills in that. And I also think, and this is probably the more important part, I don't think he's interested in it. I think all he wants to do is to do the public performance of the job and not the actual, you know, backroom conversations that, you know, are critical to actually running governments. I think at the end of the day, Paul Ryan still thinks he's a committee chairman and that he's not actually in charge of this whole caucus because I think uh, watching what happened to John Banger, he seems to have the opinion that if he starts trying to control his conference, he's just going to... Uh, end up uh, packing his bags back to Wisconsin permanently. Now, the one last thing on the Republicans I would note, and we should talk about Democrats a little bit, it is startling to me how young and inexperienced the leadership and a lot of the Republican caucus is in terms of their what kind of legislative fights they've been in the past. I mean, the last big legislative success for the Republican Party that I can think of um, is probably the series of bills that were passed between 2001 and 2003 on education, the No Child Left Behind Act, the Medicare Part D, the drug program in Medicare that was passed in in a really a truly sort of backroom, twist arms kind of process. Um, and then the Patriot Act, um, the entirety of the Obama administration, they were free. The Republicans were free to be an opposition party. And the last two years of the Bush administration, the biggest legislative things that went through were things that Republicans wouldn't do under normal circumstances, things like the financial rescue bills 
of the financial crisis. So it's been a really long time since Republicans have passed big legislative priorities. And beyond this, I mean, this was clearly a failure if it was ever meant to be intentional. But some of these things like the debt ceiling and stuff, there's also the the reauthorization of the Children's Health Insurance Program, which is considered must-pass legislation that's had bipartisan support for a long time. I mean, that I think is the question is, is this an anomaly where maybe they never wanted it to happen and it crashed and burned fast and it was over? Or is this really how it's going to be? Um, because Trump doesn't do you any favors with all of the negative press that fo- follows him all the time. So I don't know how you don't get to a point if Paul Ryan can't turn things around where there's just this feeling of like, there's a Republican majority. They've been talking about it for a long time and they're not doing anything because they can't get their act together. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's going to take them a little while to get their act together because not just the house freedom caucus, but like most of the Republican conference literally has never worked with a Republican president. They don't know what it's like to be in cooperation with a president. They are used to being in opposition to a president. And so I don't think they're out of that mindset yet. And for a lot of them, it's probably not that hard because, you know, like George W. Bush, if you're a Republican, like, yeah, you're going to disagree with him on some stuff, but like you're playing the same sport. Like you're in the same like range of like, ideas and of core philosophies and all that kind of stuff for a lot of these Republicans like Trump is not even close to how they see the world and what they want out of politics and what goals they want to achieve so for them I mean I I imagine there's very you know there's some Republicans and they might not admit this but like they are just as against Trump and his ideas and things that he throws out there as they were to Obama so I don't think that's going to change anytime soon unless Trump changes the way he approaches it. But speaking of people not having their stuff together, let's talk about the Democrats. Yeah, well, I mean, this was an instance of the Democrats kind of did have their stuff together, at least on this fight. I mean, it was one, it was very easy for Democrats to be united. I mean, they were literally trying to wipe off the books the law that is the namesake of the last Democratic president. And not only that, I mean, it's why a lot of their friends are no longer in Congress. A lot of Democrats lost their seats over the support of that bill. So I think there is sort of a sense of like, there's nothing left to lose. Um, and so it, it does give you the freedom to just kind of be in straight opposition. I think the the one thing that is impressive, I mean, Republicans never made a serious effort to court Democratic votes on this. Um, But I think part of the reason that they never did, part of the reason that this was always supposed to be a Republican-only exercise is that Nancy Pelosi does a great job of whipping her members on the House side, keeping them united. Um, And so, I mean, there's not a ton of Democrats left in the House, so there's not Democrats really that are in these, like, Trump Democratic representative districts. Um, but I, I think that was impressive. I think, I think the one thing that's now sort of on the table this week that I've seen is it sort of feels like Republicans aren't going to do anything major with health policy. They don't have their act together. And so what is next for Democrats on health policy, sort of on the general assumption that they're going to get the keys back one day soon? Um, Luke, do you have any thoughts about 
what Democrats should be doing and what, you know, how, how they should be thinking about health policy as they try to claw their way back? Yeah, I, I have a I have a couple thoughts, and this is probably a more complicated answer than either of us expected because it just kind of hit me what our strategy sh- on this should be. I think uh, part of this is forming already. I think Bernie Sanders should be out there very loudly and very forcefully advocating for single payer, which he's started to do. I think that's good. I think we need people to understand what single payer is, understand why Democrats believe that that's a good idea, and why that should be a long-term goal. However, eh, Trump's probably not going to go for it. The Republicans are clearly not going to go for it. And Obamacare still could be significantly improved by small fixes. So while Bernie makes the case for the big overarching vision of what we want to do and where we want to get, in the meantime, I think it would be smart for other Democrats like Joe Manchin or some of the you know f- more centrist Democrats to be pushing the public option for places that have only one insurance provider to choose from on the public marketplace or even just a public option for the whole marketplace so that you know it's not completely wiping out the private industry but still provides the option especially for those that don't have an affordable insurance option in their state or in their region or in their area to have at least something that could be doable or you know look into places where you can have uh, better cost controls, better insurance for, you know, children up to 18 or ways to buy into Medicaid early. Like there's all these small, sorry, Medicare, not Medicaid, but there, there's all these small changes that we could be making to make Obamacare significantly better. And I think one of the things that, and this whole fight definitely proves this is true. Like one of the things you fall into when you're an opposition party is not actually providing alternatives. And you just say, boo them. They're so bad. Look at their bad ideas. They're so bad. And then people ask you, well, what are your ideas? And then you just say, didn't you just see how bad their ideas are? Obviously our ideas are better. They have to be better. Right. And then we actually don't come up with better ideas. So I think now that Obama's gone and that they've failed to, you know, fix, uh, not fix, but failed to repeal and replace Obamacare, as Paul Ryan himself said, Obamacare is now the law of the land. So that is what we should assume that the basic framework of the American healthcare system is going to be like in the near term. And so we should be advocating ways to fix it, ways to make it better, while also making it pretty clear what our long-term goals and aspirations are for the healthcare system and where we'd like to get it, but not forsake those small changes that will really affect a lot of people's lives. Because, yes, a lot of Democrats were upset in you know 2008 when we in 2010 when we did not go single pair but at the end of the day you know over 20 million people now have health insurance because we went with the program that we did and it was successful and we were able to protect and maintain that program even under unified republican government so you know baby steps yeah this is where so i've talked with friends about sort of how the Democratic Party is sort of at risk of going along the same path that Republicans were on in their opposition to the Obama administration. And I'm sort of concerned that this division between single-payer advocates and Obamacare advocates is sort of the beginning of the purity test fight. Um, Obamacare 
providing insurance for 20 million people, it really, for the most part, left existing insurance on, um, you know, it, it didn't really mess with existing insurance all that much. It, the Obamacare's detractors will disagree, but the employer market largely exists the way that it did prior to the ACA. Medicare, pretty much the same as it was. Medicaid strengthened, and there were other provisions in the law that were meant to improve care coordination and delivery in Medicare and Medicaid. The part that you think of as Obamacare, these marketplaces where you buy health insurance, they're only catering to a very small portion of the market. Um, and so that's what allowed most people to not feel disruption in their in their health care that they get. But doing that lost Democrats the House in 2010. It became something that was politically unpopular until it was almost taken away. Um, and with a relatively minor level of disruption, going to a single payer system would be a huge level of change and disruption. And I think if you're Democrats, if you're thinking about politically how you organize around this issue and how you organize in the party, I think it would be a mistake for single payer advocates to say, well, you know, the the moderate Democrats are just going to sell out. They're never going to do single payer like we want. Let's create our own sort of outside organization, outside force, and really make these Democrats do single payer next time they're in office. Um, I think that there are other issues that Democrats will be able to approach one day when they're back in the promised land that could make advancements on economic inequality in the way that this health insurance bill did. Um, I think it would be a mistake to make this a purity test issue. And the fact that there were sort of op-eds flying around the day after the American Health Care Act failed, um, I think that's a little bit of an ominous sign. I think that's one that Democrats should just think twice about, be careful, Republic or health care isn't something that is going to, you know, be a path to political power or a path to keeping your power once you change it. Um, that's sort of a rule in American politics. And I'm, I'm not sure that a, a fight over single payer is the thing that we want to um, set our comeback on. Uh, but with that, I think we'll move on to our second topic this week. Um, so for our second topic, we're going to talk about three bills that are making their way through the last stages of the legislative process. Uh, the first of these is this year's edition of the Campus Carry Bill. Uh, you'll probably remember that last year, Governor Deal vetoed this bill after it made it through the House and the Senate. Um, the governor talked about some changes that he wanted in terms of exemptions for the Campus Carry Bill on certain places on college campuses um, that legislative leadership did not agree to. And so they sent him a bill without the changes that he wanted last year, and he vetoed it. From reporting, the governor is sort of open to a deal on this this year, but he's made it very clear that he doesn't want, he's he's going to be serious about the exemptions that he wants. He doesn't want this to create problems on university campuses the way that its detractors think that it would. Um, but that is in the Senate right now, um, so that'll be one to look for this week. The second bill, just just to sort of walk through these briefly, and then we'll talk about the culture war aspect of this, is the House Bill 51, the campus sexual assault bill. Um, this one was tabled for the 2017 session on Thursday of last week. Um, this was one that got 
A lot of press hasn't moved through the House. We talked about this pretty extensively. The Senate was a lot more skeptical of this bill. And so in the Senate Judiciary Committee, it ended up being tabled. Um, the, the advocates that were fighting against this bill were really elated about this. Um, but so it is one, I mean, anything can come back to life at any time, really, in the last few days of session. But that's one that looks like it's going to be tabled. Nothing is dead until Sangi die. The third bill that I, I think is sort of the core of this topic is an attempt to rewrite Georgia's adoption code for the first time since 1990. Um, this was a pretty benign bill that had bipartisan support. It, it sailed through the House with large bipartisan majorities. It was really intended to update the law, um, which hadn't been updated in a long time. And Jim Galloway at the AJC had a great uh, history lesson on why he he noted three different stories um, that related to this this section of Georgia's code. He he recited one story from Senator Unterman over a Republican senator who was approached by a former senator Nancy Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer was outraged back in two thousand in the late two thousands when she found out that foster care children were being placed with same sex couples. Uh, that was a time where the foster care system was being overrun and they were, you know, at least in her state Senate district, they were the advocates and the, the people placing children were just trying to deal with an uptick in foster children. Um, Unterman was approached by Schaefer to try to change that, to try to prohibit LGBT couples from adopting children or to allow adoption agencies to not adopt to LGBT couples, um, and Unterman didn't want to support it. The second piece of this, Jeff Graham, uh, about the same time as Schaefer got upset about the kids being placed, Jeff Graham became the leader of the LGBT rights group, Georgia Equality, and he was actually talked out of opening up the adoption law portion of the code uh, because it would potentially do more harm than good for for same-sex couples looking to adopt because there was this understanding this belief that there were some in the house and some in the senate that if given the opportunity to mess with that code they were gonna push their agenda to keep same-sex couples from adopting um, children out of the foster care system third piece of this mary margaret oliver uh, when she's currently in the house when she was in the senate she who is someone who is an expert on family law. Um, she had actually pulled some of her own adoption code changes for fear that they were going to open this up too. Um, so these are sort of the three issues that hit on different parts of like conservative red meat, like talk radio, red meat issues, the right to the second amendment being basically unfettered the debate over stereotype of college kids as being sort of unwilling to engage with people who disagree with them politically. And then the this adoption bill seems to be taking the place of the, uh, the religious right. Luke, what do you think about sort of these three being the center of the culture wars and how Governor Deal at times has really been the person to stand in the way of the culture wars defining what the legislature does each session? Well, the first thing I'd say is I'm honestly surprised that we didn't see a whole lot more of this because after Trump won, I was kind of expecting a lot of the, um, you know, people at the Capitol to 
sort of like read a little bit too much into it and be like, oh, Trump won, so I better get like even more radical because this is where the party in the country is going. So like, I expected a lot more of this. So I'm kind of surprised that you know when you say you want let you know let's talk about this that really these three bills are the only ones that really really stood out because um, I was expecting more. Um, as far as deal. Uh, being the person who stands up to this. I've heard a lot of my Republican friends make the joke that, like, you know, deal traded parties and switched parties and he used to be a Democrat, and so he's just, like, showing his Democratic ways. But, you know, let's be honest. Like, that's not the type of Democrat that Nathan Deal ever was. At the end of the day, it's pretty clear why he is against all three of these, at least, well, not against, but skeptical. Um... And it's because of the business community. It's that business don't does not like these bills, and it's been pretty much proven, uh, especially with anti-LBGT legislation, that the consequences of passing legislation that the business community finds to be discriminatory can be incredibly severe. So I definitely don't want to uh, say what's in Nathan Deal's heart, because I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, that has to be a big factor in why he doesn't tend to like that kind of, uh, legislation. And then on the campus carry front, I mean, I think the business community is probably not irrelevant to that conversation, but, um, common sense dictates that some of those areas should probably not have guns. And I think most of the exceptions that he has, uh, make a lot of sense even to people that um, would like to carry guns almost everywhere. And with the the you know campus sexual assault legislation, I mean, one, the testimony alone should convince you to take a second look and make sure that you're doing the right thing with it. Um, but, I mean, looking at the policy and how it was crafted, it was very... You know, clearly, I'm not going to say it was intentional, but it's very clear that it was one-sided and that it did not provide a whole lot for the people who um, were, you know, sexually assaulted and the people who had a right to pursue these charges. It really, really makes it hard to do it. And even if the intentions were good of trying to make sure due process was followed and all those concerns, I mean, it's just a hasty way to do it. So... At the end of the day, I would just say I'm, again, just surprised that we haven't seen more of this and that it's been just a couple issues that have really uh, been part of the culture war in, in Georgia. Just to, to button up Deal's role in these, um, so on the adoption bill, Deal and Ralston were quoted in the AJC asking Senate leaders to remove the amendment to kind of go back to the drawing board on that adoption bill deal vetoed campus carry last year. It, it seems like he's ready to negotiate on this one, but he is, um, you know, he, he's very stringent in, in what he wants and he never commented as far as I could tell on the campus sexual assault bill. Um, so I don't know that that was one. He never weighed in either way. Um, but it does sort of fit the profile of the bills that he doesn't really like to engage with. Um, but deals, you know, chops on these issues got praise from Jay Bookman. He's the liberal commentator at the AJC. Um, he had a column called these days, quiet leadership is vastly undervalued. And he cited deals moderation on, on both guns and social policy, but also on tax policy. 
Um, and that reminded me of the Kansas governor, Sam Brownback, who ran what he called a real life social experiment of like truly radical conservative tax policy in Kansas that gutted the state budget and brought brought the only instance of a moderate Republican wave that I can think of in recent memory in this last state election in Kansas. Bobby Jindal over in Louisiana left that budget a mess when he left. And then people know about the North Carolina uh, transgender bathroom bill and the pushback against that. Um, so I think that it, this is, I think, a part of Deal's record that's a little bit undervalued. I think if Carter had won, Jason Carter, in 2014, these outcomes in these areas would have largely been the same. Um, and so I well, think I, if you're I, a Democrat... Actually, I want to back up on that just real quick. I mean, considering the the votes that were in the... Um, you know, state house and state senate that it's pretty close to super majorities in both chambers. Do you not think that the Republicans might have tried to overturn his vetoes on these issues because it came from a Democrat governor? I'm not sure. I don't. I mean, I think it would de- would have depended on the timing if it was happening this year in year three of uh, Jason Carter's term. I think there would have been, you know, Republican leadership sort of looking to pump the brakes a little bit like they have been. I mean, they sent Deal a RIFRA bill last time, and this time they didn't really entertain one in the House or Senate side. Um, and, they, and they sent him the campus carry bill. But I don't I don't know. I I don't think the votes would have been there for an override. Um, but I, but I think this is a good way to transition into our third topic so that the hole on these things, the hole on the culture wars issues and the lack of progress on them is something that's upset state Senator Josh McCoon, who announced that he is not going to run for reelection in the state Senate and is rumored to be a candidate for governor. Um, so just to kind of transition into looking forward to the 2018 governor's race, it does sort of feel like we're heading for a race where Governor Deal might be a dividing line in a Republican primary. I I, th- I think we can go ahead and say that is what's going to happen because I think a lot of the reason why that legislation like the adoption bill is popping up and there's been a lot of other things that have either been slowed or sped up in the past couple weeks, I think really has to do with the fact that people are already jockeying for um, the governor's race and... Honestly, I'll be pretty surprised if most folks don't make their announcements right after session for some of these races. Because at the end of the day, I think all of next session is going to just be about who's running for governor. Yeah, it does kind of feel this way. Let's get into some of who we think the candidates are going to be. Luke, why don't you talk about who is rumored to be running right now on the Republican side? Yeah, so there's a lot of people already that have been rumored to be running. Um, We've got one formal announcement in Brian Kemp. Uh, It was sort of haphazardly announced in that um, it wasn't like an announcement event or anything, but it just sort of like leaked to the news and ended up uh, coming out everywhere. Yeah. and I think there's something pretty significant about that in, in that Brian Kemp was the first person to announce. Um, 
you know, for those of you who don't know, Brian Kemp is our current Secretary of State. Uh, to throw some shade, he's been on the news a lot for incredibly negative reasons because all of our uh, voter data keeps getting like lost to the ether, and people's like you know they had for a while at the top of his uh, website they did free fraud checks uh, for people whose identities might have been stolen because they kept leaking stuff so much accidentally. So that was fun. So he thinks that record's good enough that uh, he should uh, be governor. Um, and as a personal note, I had to email his office every single election because every time they left off one piece of data that I wanted and had to tell them, Hey, you always put this up here, put it up here. Um, so again, on that record, Brian Kemp wants to be governor or maybe he just wants to retire. I'm not sure. Um, but the other big candidate that, um, I want to get to before we get into some of the more obscure candidates is, uh, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle. So, he was rumored to be running in 2010, ended up not, uh, and sort of has kind of been the person that everyone's been kind of looking at to run for governor for quite some time, uh, basically ever since, uh, you know, 2014 when uh, Nathan Deal was reelected. I think it goes without saying that the fact that we're about to have to go on for quite some time about how many other Republicans might be running for uh, governor is a sign of why Casey Cagle is weak because the fact that he hasn't been able to clear the field despite being lieutenant governor and despite um, having a really public face, there's a lot of other people that seem to be considering it. Um, and it's it's notable to me that Cagle's had such a hard time actually clearing the field. Um, the other person that I want to talk about is the House Speaker David Ralston. I I would say that I'm skeptical of this, um, of him getting in, just because the House Speaker in Georgia has a lot of power. You know, the budget starts in the House, all the appropriations bills start there. So, I mean, the House Speaker has a ton of power. So, I would be personally surprised if David Gralston gets in. But at the end of the day, if it's a race between some people that Ralston feels like wouldn't do a good job, I think that might be uh, what would get him into this race. Cagle has been the sort of the placeholder in my mind. If you, if you assume, and I think that you know this is this really is a fifty fifty assumption, but if you were to assume Republic Republicans were holding the governor's mansion and after twenty eighteen, the person who's been in my head who I thought would be there was Cagle. Uh, but he he is one I I just think he benefits from visibility. Um, he is also someone who has sought the spotlight. He has an entire book on education reform, and that is something. Once you sort of dig into the issues of what they're going to be talking about, the governor deal. He it appears that he's not going to meet his goal of reforming the education funding formula. Um, he did get caught up in this school turnaround fight that it sort of looks like he's going to get his way on for the second version of this. Um, but there is also going to be the implementation of the every, every student succeeds act, which is the replacement of no child left behind from the federal level. And it, without getting into all the wonky details, it basically gives the state a bigger role than no child left behind did. Um, so there is, a lot of room for education pretty much as always to be a central issue of this campaign. And I think Cagle was sort of looking forward to that by, by writing this book. Ralston, I think is actually the candidate I'm most intrigued by 
because I've never thought of him as someone who could potentially be governor. I mean, he hasn't really been House Speaker that long, but he's been House Speaker as long as I've been following Georgia politics. Um, and his just sort of the way the house works. I mean, he's not somebody who votes. He's not somebody who, um, you know, you can see in public doing all of the negotiating on the things that go in that happen in the house. I mean, he's completely behind the scenes. And so it's, um, I think it's harder to pinpoint where he would be ideologically in a race like that, but he is the candidate. I think that, um, can have strong rural credibility bringing, uh, you know, bringing attention to rural issues in a way that I don't, you know, Kegel seems like a product of Atlanta. I'm not sure. Is he from Metro Atlanta? I think Kegel, I think Kegel's from Gainesville. Every, every Republicans from Gainesville for some reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Kegel feels like a Metro Atlanta politician. Ralston feels more like a, like a country boy politician. Well, he's from Blue Ridge. So other candidates whose names have been floating around the news, uh, Nick Ayers, Hunter Hill, who's currently in the race to replace Tom Price in the in Tom Price's congressional district, Burt Jones and Michael Williams. Um, the you know the bit the big wild card in that is Josh McCoon. He he didn't he said he's not going to run for reelection, so it's it's not clear if he's going to get in. And another person that we had mentioned earlier was uh, Ling Westmoreland, who uh, decided to retire from Congress in 2016. A lot of people thought that was to consider running for governor. And there are some early signs that he was like he went on like a reconnect with Georgia tour and stuff like that. But there's been far less rumbling with him lately. So maybe he's just keeping a low profile and he's going to kind of come out there and surprise everyone. But uh it's it's uh, someone definitely uh, keep your eye on see what uh, old Congressman Westmoreland will do. So there uh, to move on to the Democrats, it it does look like there's going to be a competitive race to at least challenge Republican control of the governor's mansion this time. And the the news of this week, the rumor mill has uh, been focused on both Stacey's, Stacey Abrams, who is the leader of the Democrats in the house and Stacey Evans, who is also a member of the house who is most well known for her work on the hope scholarship and her work trying to make good policy in the education and in higher education space, um, as a house representative. Um, so just to start with these two, and then we'll, we'll get into some names that are also potentially floating around. What do you think about this potential battle between the two Stacey's Abrams and Evans? Um, I'm sad and excited at the same time. I'll get my sadness out of the way very quickly just by saying, due to Georgia's resign to run laws, it's a near guarantee if they run that they'll be out of the state house and that someone else will take their seats. And so we won't get to see them work anymore, won't get to benefit from their work anymore. So that is a shame. However, I'm excited by this because I think part of the problem that we've had in Georgia is having too much of a top-down approach where, you know, the state party says, this is our candidate. Everyone vote for this candidate. And they've been successful at doing that, but there's always been, like, pretty decent-sized opposition to um, their attempts to do that. You know, in 2014, Jason Carter had the field cleared for him, but Michelle Nunn didn't. And she ended up getting 70% of the primary, which is pretty good, but, you know, considering 
the differences and like the amount of resources that she had pretty significant same goes for jim barksdale he had a like he won like 64 percent of the vote or something like that in the primary uh i am completely guessing that number but i think that's about what it was um and i don't think that's a good approach i don't think it's a good approach for the party just to say this is our ordained candidate vote for this person and we'll win because obviously we haven't won so i think having two, at least two, high-quality Democrat candidates that both legitimately could be good governors, that both legitimately have a vision for where the party should go um, and have them duke it out, I think ultimately is a good thing. Um, Because at the end of the day, um, it's going to attract more attention, it's going to attract more energy, it'll get people fired up. And the main thing is we'll just, you know, we have to avoid going into the divisive bernie versus hillary-esque fights that have been happening all over the country every time an election pops up now so i don't really see how those two could possibly ever like have a fight exactly along those predetermined lines but having a divisive you know bloody fight won't help us but having a productive active conversation about what the party should be doing i think could be really really good um and i think it definitely shouldn't be limited to just them you know if jason carter uh decides to get back in i think that would be good and honestly i would have a really hard time choosing from the three of them of which one i would vote for and i have to actively watch the race and see who's running the best campaign and who has the best message um and you know there's there's quieter conversations about john barrow doing something i definitely think he's probably looking towards 2020 if he's considering a comeback in politics and running against david perdue but i wouldn't count him out either so my point is and this is the most important thing we need to avoid the top-down approach of the party just saying who's going to be our candidate we need to have a primary we need to have it be well fought and well publicized and uh, come together at the end of it to have the best option on the table to beat back whatever Republican ends up surviving their bloodbath of a primary. Now, do you think there's any chance... Um, it it does feel like there's a lot of potential talent that could all fight for one slot. I mean, is there could there be an advantage or, or would this look too manufactured to actually, instead of running four candidates for one spot, try to run the democratic ticket. That is, uh, you know, top to bottom on the statewide races, all of the most talented people that are in democratic politics right now. I, I, I mean, I think that is a possibility because, you know, all, the statewide races are always like a mad dash for the escalators and like only one person can get on the escalator and everybody else is stuck on the ground floor. Um, so, I mean, I think, I, I mean, that's kind of what happened in 2014. Like, Sky Stokes announced that she was running for governor. And then when Jason Carter announced, she's like, oh, I like Jason. I think he'd be good. I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. So, if, if that was organic and happened, it, there could be some benefit to it. However, at least in past Georgia elections, the only candidate that really gets enough money to run a real campaign is the governor. Um, and if there's a senator up, but we won't have a senator up unless something, uh, you know, bizarre happens. Um, so at the end of the day, 
with the talent that we have and with the people that are considering running, I think a primary is ideal just because of two things. One, the political science is showing and history is showing that states start to change from the top down electorally, as in first the state flips presidentially, then the statewide start to flip, then the you know state house, state senate starts to flip, and then the local elections start to flip. So I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that we're going to see like some significant tidal wave change if uh, we just run like a good candidate for governor and lieutenant governor. Like I don't think there'll be a big difference if we just have a solid governor candidate or if we have a solid slate of candidates. Um, because the party lacks real direction, I think, from the candidates that have run for governor the past couple times, and it's been a little stale, uh, and we haven't had a broad vision for what we want Georgia to be. And I think until we have a good fight over what that means and the, you know, crucible that is a Democratic primary that's strongly contested, forming a stronger candidate, I think, is ideal because... What ends up happening inevitably, even if they try to avoid it, is what will happen is the Democratic candidate for governor, if they're in an uncontested primary, it'll be very sleepy, they won't have to work as hard, they'll get complacent, and so you're not able to make the wins, as I always point out to, of like Obama winning in Indiana in 08. That only happened because he had to fight over Indiana, you know? So if you have a Democratic primary, you're going to have to fight over making Camden County, you're gonna have to fight over all these like little places to get enough votes to win. You can't just play in Atlanta and think that's gonna be enough to win. So I think at the end of the day, avoiding that complacency for the entire race is the only way that we flip the state. This is gonna be a, a relatively unique race for governor in that this is really the first race in the modern era where a group of Democrats can run a group of Democrats in Georgia can run against what is likely to be an unpopular Republican in Washington, the sort of false starts on Democrats coming back to power in particularly in 2014, there was also maybe a little potential with Roy Barnes in 2010, but you know, part of the false starts of those is that there was just a national wave against democratic politicians and it was animated by opposition to Barack Obama. This is really the first race since Republicans have taken over the governor's mansion that they're going to have to run on the coattails of a Republican president who is massively unpopular. Um, and so it is going to be interesting to see how that shapes what the uh, you know what the Democratic candidates can do. It is interesting that the two most talked about candidates right now are two women. Um, that would certainly, at least from a symbolic perspective, be um, something that would make them stand out um, and, and an, as candidates. And another thing to look into as well is the John Ossoff race in the Georgia 6th, um, because... That is the type of district that Democrats are going to have to flip to win. The suburbs where it's highly educated people, a lot, and this is a fact I actually found out today, is that like only 30% of the people that are in the Georgia 6th are actually originally from Georgia. So most of the people that live there 
are from some other state. So those are the voters that are the mythical demographic, you know, voters that, you know, you hear the Democrats talk about in Georgia that, you know, once the demographic waves start to, you know, come in that we're going to win automatically because all these people that are willing to vote for Democrats will show up. Well, a lot of them don't even know what a Democrat in Georgia is because they've never had one run because, and this is probably like the most insane fact that I found out recently that the average Democratic candidate against Tom Price was able to raise ten thousand dollars john ossoff has like three million so like what is what is this district's reaction going to be actually like having a legitimate well-funded you know well-rehearsed quality democrat candidate running for their seat in the era of trump if we see ossoff win or even lose just by a little bit i mean that's a sign that that's a way that we can actually make inroads with these voters and start to win them over is by um you know running better candidates that are better funded and that have trump to look to so i think that race is going to be really important for how worried the republicans should be and just how hard it will be for democrats to um flip georgia because by no means if john ossoff wins does that mean oh georgia is you know is going to go blue in 2018 um but it opens the door for the possibility for sure all right, so that'll wrap our third topic for the week, and we'll close out the show with endnotes as we always do. Um, so my endnote for this week is this just bizarre interview that Donald Trump gave with Time Magazine. Um, this came out right in the middle of the American Health Care Act push, um, but it's also in the middle of all this sort of ongoing stuff with Russia. And it was just, I mean, part of this is just the way in which Trump sort of wanders from topic to topic and and doesn't seem to be engaged with the questions someone's asking him. I don't, this interview was just bizarre. What did you think of this Luke? Did you see it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I read it too. And honestly, it's just, yeah, it's just bizarre. Like <laughs> it's, it's really one thing I've learned. I'm really fascinated by, at least with myself is that when Trump talks, I totally understand him. Like, I seriously do. Like, I get it when he speaks. I comprehend. Yeah, like, I comprehend the point that he's trying to make, like, the emotion behind it. And obviously, like, I don't agree with it, but, like, I understand. When I read his stuff, I do not get it at all. Like, I just cannot follow it at all. It's just, like, very tangential and, like, word salady. And it's just very weird and i've never seen anyone who like the level of comprehension is so different for me between reading what they said and um listening to what they said so that that was that was just like re-emphasized to me by reading this interview with him the thing that's just crazy to me is this is right in the middle of the american health care act push i mean there's been so much about how you know, one of the advantages to being president is that you can focus attention on the things that you want to focus attention on merely by talking about them. And there's so much that goes into message discipline and 
and using that to pursue your legislative ends. And then in the middle of this American Healthcare Act debate, he's bringing up the old claims about 3 million undocumented people voting in the election, about Muslims celebrating on 9-11 in New Jersey. He's even hitting on these things that people remember from cable news when you know, George Stephanopoulos laughed on a Sunday show panel at the idea that Trump could actually be the Republican nominee. I mean, it's I, just like, how are all of these things floating around in his head when he should be focused on his legislative priorities? I just, and, and like, uh, it just blows my on mind. On another note, like, I wish that Trump was still just like a TV celebrity and some reason we were talking about this because like he has a very like weird fascinating view on truth that he gave in this interview which was the view that if he says something without any evidence but it turns out to be right then he said something that was true so like if right now donald trump said oh did you see what happened in atlanta that was awful it was the worst thing ever that you know that attacking Atlanta was awful, and then three years from now, an attacking Atlanta happened. He would claim that he was right that Atlanta got attacked and it was awful, <laughs> and that he was right then because like a big point he makes is that like so many of the things I said turned out to be true. So like even if he said something and it was not true when he said it, if it eventually becomes true, then he said something that was true. Like, that's his view. I'm so glad it was not him that made the claim about Russia being the number one political foe of the United States back in the 2012 debate, because we would never live it down. <laughs> I mean, like, if he had made that prediction, we would have to hear about it for the entirety of his presidency. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's basically what we've had to deal with, though, is like he has a couple of those key issues that he just brings up over and over and over again of like, I was right. You know, everyone said that this was not true, but it turned out to be true. And I was right. And so it's just very odd. So, yeah, with uh, to end on that incoherent note, uh, we'll put a link to the interview in the show notes, but the, this thing is just a doozy to read. Uh, Luke, what's your end note for this week? Uh, my end note is actually a request, which is, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're getting close to the end of session, which means we're not going to have as much like free fodder to work with as we used to, we usually do. So um, this is, again, my, you know, every so often reminder, of, please like our show and share it with your friends, and also email us. We love emails. We... we we are sustained by them. So if you can give us some, some emails about things you'd like to have us talk about or um, topics we want to look into, guests we should try to you know get on. Don't say Trump. Um, we're not going to get Trump on here. Um, but you know, reasonable guests, guests that we could actually get. Um, that would be a really big help because we definitely want to make this show something that like is talking about the things that you want to hear about so uh giving us some feedback is the best way to do that including hate mail hate mail definitely uh can be informative one day we'll be famous enough to get hate mail that's my goal that the day is not today as of yet um but yeah definitely let us know what you would like to see in the show going forward particularly as we head into the legislative off season we are currently thinking about what the show is going to look like and would love to hear from you 
Uh, but with that, I think we will wrap it up for the week and we will talk to you again after Sunny Die. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.